Right now, though, talking about a disturbing story, windows of at least 26 transit buses have been damaged while traveling through the downtown east side of Vancouver. So at this point, I don't have an exact number for you. Um, I haven't been provided with that information as a, uh, regarding to cost. Um, I don't anticipate any um, delay in service in terms of, of taking a bus or catching a bus at this point. I do know uh, offhand that to replace one of those windows is, I'm told, is very expensive. So I think it would be safe to say it's probably in the thousands, yes. That was Constable Amanda Steed with the Metro Vancouver Transit Police answering a question about the costs of this damage. What about the problems or the issues with danger and people being on the buses and if this continues and why this is happening? Well, for that, we are joined now by Constable Tanya Vizentine, Media Relations Officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Constable, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. So can you talk a bit more? This is all happening in one specific area of the downtown east side. How long has this been happening? That's right. So between January 17th and 31, there have been 26 broken bus windows. So from reviewing video from inside the buses, we determined that all of the windows were shattered while the buses were in motion in the early morning hours of the day. And so also from that video, we were able to see that it was uh, buses traveling along East Hastings Street between Gore and Camby. And it sounds like, from what I understand too, it's it's not something that the glass is, is flying everywhere. And in some cases, the drivers aren't seeing this until after they've parked the buses? That's right. So in each of these cases, the windows weren't immediately, or the broken windows weren't immediately noticed by um, drivers or anybody riding the bus. Uh, It was all noticed after the fact. Um, Whatever's being launched at the bus, um, whatever the object is, we still don't know, but it's never actually entering the bus, thankfully. So there have been no injuries uh, to passengers or drivers. But of course, uh, something like this is very concerning when you hear this, when you hear something being thrown at a bus in motion with people on it. That is very concerning. So we're, we're working together with our partners at um, Metro Vancouver Transit Police to uh, fully investigate this, um, as it's definitely a priority for us. And looking at this then, getting the video from inside the buses, have there been passengers on the buses when this is happening? Yes, for sure. So there, there are buses that are in motion carrying passengers. So we are appealing to any of those passengers if they did see something or even if somebody was outside the bus and saw a bus driving by and saw uh, something suspicious happening, please give us a call. Uh, we, we need to speak to those people. And does it point to anything like somebody would have a motive or why somebody would choose that specific area and only that area as far as targeting buses? Yeah, great question. And, and unfortunately, we don't know. That's, that's the simple answer. We don't know what the motive is. We don't know what object is being used. And we don't even know where it's coming from. We've, we've narrowed it down to know that it's not coming from somebody riding the bus on the inside. Video footage does show us that. It's, it's coming from somewhere, something, someone outside of the bus. So um, we, we don't have a lot of information right now. And, and um, over the past two weeks, there has been an increase of incidents. So that's why we're, we're coming forward um, to the public and asking for their help. And when you say the early morning hours as well, are you able to narrow that down or has it been happening at the same time each time? So it's not, no, not the same time. It's it's sometime in the early morning hours before the darkness uh, fades. It's still a bit dark out. So it's hard to narrow down a specific time as um, each incident is different. Uh, but we're able to say it's it's not in the afternoon at all.
All right. Are, are there specific buses then that in that part of the city would it be a, the night bus that's being that are that are that is getting damaged? Or uh, I'm just thinking that there wouldn't be as many buses uh, in those in those overnight hours as there would be say at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's right. And, and I believe transit would have uh, transit police would have more information on that. But it is uh, a bus that does travel um, along Hastings between Gore and Camby. All right. Can I also ask you, uh, this obviously a disturbing case and something that you and transit police are dealing with. Uh, we also saw a, a, another assault, an attack on a woman that happened at the Marine Gateway uh, area. What happened there? Yeah, so a a 23-year-old woman was coming off a bus in that area. I believe she was approached by um, the 38-year-old suspect who asked for cigarettes. Uh, The victim did not have that, and when um, denied any of the cigarettes, she was then punched in the the face several times. So uh, thanks to a a nearby witness that was able to call police immediately, we were able to get there and arrest the suspect, and that suspect has been taken to jail and is charged. What does that say about the level of violence? I mean, here's somebody, it sounds like she, as you said, got off a bus, was minding her own business. It's not unusual, I think, to have somebody say, hey, can I bum a cigarette? Do you have this? And in most cases, you would say, nope, don't have that. Sorry, don't smoke and go about your day. Uh, What does it say that this level of violence, that the response to someone saying that was to attack them? Yeah, I mean, it's brazen and it's quite frightening in in my opinion. Um, You know, no one should have to change their behaviors, change the route that they walk home from. Uh, None of that needs to change. What needs to change is the behavioral of, of the criminals. And I think you were asked this during the news conference earlier today, but are we seeing an increase then in the number? We've talked to you about stranger assaults or any assaults for that matter. Are we seeing an increase in the daily calls that police get on those types of attacks? Yeah, this is something we've seen the past uh, few months. We came out with a number last year, um, about four a day on average, after we did a a manual dive into uh, those types of assaults. So we noticed that number. And and yeah, that's that's very concerning. You know, it's something we we continue to talk about. And and, uh, from an investigative point of view, we're, we're, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes and a lot of, um, you know, proactive things that our our officers are doing and a lot of... um, you know, presence that we're having in those hard hit areas. So, uh, you know, in this case, though, the the a witness called us right away, and that's something we always stress. And in this case, they did that, and we were able to arrest that suspect before um, she hurt anyone else. And how was the woman doing who was attacked? Uh, she had some physical facial injuries, um, you know, that, that, that happened from the punches. And, and I mean, of course, the, the trauma of this is, um, is something very, uh, very upsetting. And, and- how do you deal with it again? And I know what you're saying that the kind of change procedure, obviously police respond to these things. So we've kind of covered a few things here. The, the bus windows that are, are somebody's launching projectiles at them and they're breaking these stranger attacks. Uh, we saw another uh, tweet from the Eva and Wiggs company in Vancouver. They've been hit, I think, for the third time somebody broke their, their front door. We've seen other businesses that continue to post photos of their broken windows. How do you respond as a police department when it does seem, and maybe Maybe it's because people are sharing these things more, but it does seem like this is happening more and more. Yeah, I mean, we are hearing anecdotally, we're hearing from people that call, you know, radio stations like you or, or people that are talking to our neighborhood policing officers. We're hearing that people are feeling unsafe in the community. Uh, as a police department, that, that concerns us for sure. We are in the realm of public safety here, and uh, one person feeling unsafe is one too many. So we are, as a police department, we are doing a lot behind the scenes, and um, especially being a more... Um, 
um, more visible presence. And we are having in these harder hit areas, more officers on foot, uh, just creating more of a presence, more uh, security for those neighborhoods. All right. Constable Vizentine, thanks so much as always for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Joe. Well, we know that uh, throughout this pandemic, cycling has become more and more popular, at least in the beginning months. I recall we did stories on people hauling their bikes out of storage, finding that maybe the tires were flat, maybe the chain was a little rusty, maybe the bike needed a little more than a tune-up. So take it off to the shop and get it back into tip-top shape. Well, seems like that would be the normal and the right thing to do. But there's now now a petition that calls for the end of built-to-fail bikes. So it started in the States, and it's really targeting bikes that are made of cheap products, in many cases plastics, that break. And there is no way to fix the bike. You ride it for a few months, hopefully, and then what? You're supposed to just throw it away and get a new one? Well, that's where the petition comes into place with people saying that's not really sustainable and why should people be putting these bikes on the market if they are just going to break? Let's bring in Sarah Thomas. Sarah Thomas is shop manager at the Our Community Bikes in Vancouver and she's joining us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, what's, what are your thoughts on this uh, bikes that are built to fail and how much of a problem is that? Well, certainly. We're seeing a higher percentage of bikes that come into our shop that are just not able to be fixed. So we find ourselves having to, you know, help explain to people the things to look for and the pieces um, to pay attention to rather than being able to just, like, fix the bikes. And really, uh, we're here to fix bikes and help make uh, bikes affordable and keep people on the road. So that's the challenge that we see with some of these built-to-fail bikes. And so what exactly are they made of? And, and I would imagine these bikes are probably a bit less expensive, and that's what draws people to them. But what are they made of that is the big issue? Well, the thing to pay attention to is how the components are connected. So the welding of the joints and sometimes on the bikes, if there's like holes in the frame or there's the headset sometimes we're finding is like made of plastic. And these components just are not then set up to be ridden heavily ongoing for years. How long do they generally last for? Yeah, so these, I mean, some of these bikes, we hear that they're kind of, you know, designed to ride for 90 hours, um, where certainly our uh, thrust here at our community bikes is around bikes for means of transportation. And, you know, people really ride their bikes for all the time and, you know, go great distances. And so 90 hours is is probably not even going to last for a year, um, which is is a real challenge, especially when bikes traditionally were completely fixable and you could always replace a component when it is no longer done. And, you know, you can take off the chain rings and just swap out to get a new one on the one that's worn. But if the other two are still fine, you're good. Um, Whereas some of these challenges now where it's more affordable on the outset, um, ultimately ends up costing more over the span of a few years because of all the maintenance costs or even just the need to full-on replace it because it's not fixable. Right. So I guess, so there are some scenarios where you can fix it, but like you said, the costs of that are going to add up pretty quickly. Exactly. And where are people getting these bikes? So department store bikes are are often the case where there's these really 
uh, components that are in made of plastic or just like not put together. Um, oftentimes you just kind of have to, you know, keep an eye out and ask the questions um, so that you can try and avoid those bikes. And we mentioned too, so there was a petition that actually started in the United States to call for mm-hmm. an end of these bikes. And is that now gaining support or people are, are kind of signing on to this and wanting this to be an issue here as well? Certainly. Yeah, we're you're seeing lots of uptake for it. And, you know, it really resonated with us. We were speaking actually with the mechanics who started the petition at a community bike conference a few months ago and really talking about this issue. And we see it across the world at community bike shops where our mandate is to help people fix their bikes and help empower people to fix their own bikes. So we have, you know, do-it-yourself opportunities and run courses and help provide access for, you know, bikes as transportation and that feeling that we are spending a higher percentage of our time teaching people that their bike's not able to be fixed rather than teaching people how to fix their bikes. And what we really want to do is teach people how to fix their bikes. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, gaining a lot of traction here too. We shared the petition and the article when it came out and it had more hits on our social media than any other post combined. Um, which really shows, you know, the uptake and the importance of this issue for people in Vancouver and and really across the country. Because I would imagine, too, if somebody comes in and they've purchased this bike, and even if it's not super expensive, it's a couple hundred bucks, mm-hmm. you make the assumption that, okay, well, if something goes wrong, it should be able to fix this. It's got to be pretty upsetting for people if you then, then have to tell them, no, actually, this is a really cheap, this, this, the quality just isn't here, we can't fix this bike. Yeah, it's really, that's, you know, personally, that's one of the things I struggle with the most because it's so, so sad for people, you know, and like we, we are not trying to upsell people. We're trying to help make sure that we can create affordable solutions for people to have transportation. And sometimes that is just the reality is like this bike can't be fixed or like it's going to cost more to fix the bike than to buy a refurbished bike from us that we know is going to last better. Um, And so really encouraging people to go to bike shops, uh, you know, gain this education, look at some of those key components, comparing a plastic headset to a metal headset, paying attention to how the bike is welded together. Um, Or, you know, ask these questions at a bike shop because people at bike shops, the mechanics know, know these details where oftentimes if bikes are being bought, you know, at department stores or even online, sometimes you just can't really ask those questions the same way. Right. And I would imagine, too, you're going to find, for the most part, at bike shops where there is an in-house mechanic or mechanics, they are not in the business. They don't want to sell you a bike that's going to fall apart within 90 hours of using it. They want to make sure you get a good bike. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And we really want to make sure that the bikes are able to be fixed so that when you come in with a challenge, we're able to be like, yes, no problem. Let us fix that for you. We can put on, you know, a new chain ring or we can replace the headset. We can replace the bottom bracket uh, and then you'll be good to go again. I would, it must be, though, a, a bit of a, I mean, on the one hand, again, if somebody wants a bike and has a price range, the bikes can be super expensive. And then you also mm-hmm. have to worry about the fact that we live in a place where bikes get stolen all of the time and, and issues like that. So it's got to be kind of that fine balance of how much do you spend to make sure you get a bike that's good enough. It's not going to fall apart, but it's still going to be able to get you to where you need to go. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and paying attention to, you know, how are you going to use the bike and how much are you trying to use the bike and then looking at where are you locking it. If you're using it and you're locking it outside often, you know, maybe paying attention to are you using quick release or maybe it's time to replace the quick release with, you know, something that's going to be bolted in or even a security skewer that has a separate, you know, security key to unlock it so that when someone's just passing by on the street, they can't steal it as easily. So there's some of those details that we can also talk through with people when they are looking at a bike because there are a range of options. And sometimes those small changes that you can make on the bike really goes a long way in terms of increasing your security and avoiding bike theft. Right. Okay. Is there a, a price point where a bike should cost a certain amount or, or you know, like you said, if you're in a scenario with a, a huge store where there, there's not a bike person to ask or you're buying it online uh, and it seems too good to be true, it probably is, but is there a mm-hmm. price point where you need to spend this amount to, to even get into that category of a good bike? Well, I... I'll answer in the reverse, and I would say if anything is ever under $200, I would be very wary um, because probably it's not going to work or there's going to be some things that you should really be paying attention to. Um, Other than that, I mean, the range is so great in terms of different bike components. You know, if you're finding a used bike, you could find a really great used bike under $500, absolutely. Um, if you're, you know, paying attention to what you're looking for and you can get a good deal. Um, otherwise, you know, and inflation and everything these days, it's really all over the map. But certainly there are a lot of options out there. Um, and bikes at our shop here, you know, we've got lots of bikes for $500 and kind of in that range that are fully refurbished and meant for, you know, heavy use. All right. Well, good to know and uh, good good thoughts. Uh, like you said, if it's less than $200, there's probably something up with uh, such a great deal. Sarah, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks very much. We are taking a look now at some numbers. These were put out by BC Transplant and taking a look at the number of organ donations this past year. And while, of course, it's a sad story when we're talking about deceased organ donors because it means somebody has lost their life, it does bring a little comfort and brings some joy to others who get a new life and a new lease on life because of that. So a record 150 deceased organ donors gave that incredible gift of life in this province last year and that's an increase that's 23% more than the previous record that was set in 2018 with 122 donors. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Sean Keenan, BC Transplants Medical Director for Organ Donation. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Can you talk a little bit about the number? When we say that it's a record 150 deceased organ donors, what does that actually mean when we're talking about people and talking about this program? Well, it's, it means a number of things. It, you know, from all the, the increase in the number of organ donors, we also have a, a, a not surprising increase in the number of transplant recipients. Um, so we had the highest number of transplant recipients this year, uh, 529. Um, and amongst those, we had um, highest numbers for lung transplants at 66, 
um, deceased uh, donor kidney transplants at 265 and um, liver transplants at 97. So that's one thing it means. The other is that the system seems to be working well. Uh, We are getting a a lot of help from our ICU partners, despite how much stress and how stretched they are with the pandemic. And so we've had a record number of referrals this year, which I believe is what translates directly into uh, the number of donors. Uh, because we've talked in the past as well about there being a disconnect when you ask people, are you in support of organ, organ donation? Do you think it's a good idea, a good program? And people will say yes. But the number of people who say that, that number doesn't often match the number of people who have actually signed on to say, yes, I'm an organ donor. So is that message getting out or is that changing? Um, well, you're absolutely right. Um, I, you know, of the people that actually end up being tragically in the situation for donation, the majority actually haven't registered as of yet. And so one thing we always like to kind of stress and hope that people can take the time to register. I don't think it means they're not interested in being an organ donor. They just haven't had the time or being ready to actually register. So uh, there's not been a major increase in the number of registrations um, over the last couple of years, especially with COVID um, interfering with, you know, with the potential for in-person events that we normally would help uh, people register. Uh, but there's clearly a willingness uh, in, in amongst uh, BC um, families uh, to consider donation. And, 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 and of course, we want to recognize uh, all of the families that were involved in these cases. It's it's extremely uh, sad time for everyone because every case is a tragic event and somebody who shouldn't have died. And for them to consider donation um, is really quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's we tend to look at the the positive as well. The fact that somebody has been given a new lease on life because of this. But you're right. There's that also means in these cases, if we're talking about deceased organ donors, that is there's been a, a tragedy somewhere else. Is it changing as far as the criteria? I know we've talked in the past that with the opioid crisis, there was a number of organs that came. And again, sadly, when somebody had died of an overdose, has it changed as far as the criteria or where or organs can be, in what scenarios they can be donated from? No, it's still um, much the same as it has been um, as far as, you know, patients who are either become brain dead or those who uh, have no hope of recovery and the decision has been made to uh, withdraw life support in in the ICU setting. So the criteria is still the same um, as far as being eligible to donate. That hasn't changed and and what about the technology or as far as the whole process? And again, we know when somebody is a recipient, there are anti-rejection drugs and, and the fact that it's it's not a cure, it's a treatment in, in many cases. Has that changed at all as well as far as the technology and the science around organ donation? Yeah, my, my expertise doesn't lie on the transplant science, so I sort of keeping that in mind, um, I mean, it clearly... In medicine and surgery, generally, um, there are improvements in, in care over time. Um, I, this year compared to last year, I don't know if there's been any marked change, in, but just the ability for the transplant programs to handle the increased uh, volume of, uh, of organ donors this year is really something to remark on. And, 
Also, the transplant hospitals trying to ensure that despite the stress that they're under and their ORs are under, they have managed to find a way for this to happen. Um, and, and clearly, the, post, the, the care beyond that is, is really important as well. Um, uh, and, and when you talk about those numbers and those record numbers, is, is that because there are more people that are organ donors or is it, or is it that there is more need for organ donors? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not saying that correctly in that the number of people say that would be on a list that would be waiting for an organ. Has that number increased or the other has shifted in that there just there are more organs available to get through people that are on the list? Well, um, there's always been a, a shortage of um, organs for transplant compared to the number of people who are waiting. And there's always been, sadly, people who will die uh, with never getting a transplant and others who who will be removed from the, the list just simply because they're too sick. Um, so that continues to be true, although it does appear that this year, at least, our, our waiting list has reduced some, uh, uh, somewhat um, with the increased number of donors and transplants, which is clearly what we would like to be able to do it, as to meet the need totally. But we are, are still a ways off from that. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, too, uh, the pandemic, so really putting a damper on those in-person events to get the word out there and to raise awareness about the program and the importance of organ donation. Has there also been an impact as far as actual capacity in hospitals or actual time and availability of space to do transplants? Um, it certainly has been more challenging for our transplant hospitals, um, but they so far have been able to manage um, it requires a lot of coordination on the operating room part to to try to find time to do this and for the surgical teams uh, uh, to do this. Um, our hospitals where the, the um, don- organ donors come from are also um, very stretched and, and they have been very um, good at stepping forward and trying to uh, ensure that all these cases go, go uh, smoothly. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a harder year, the last few years, to, for sure. Um, but to date, it, it, these folks are still managing to make this all happen. And do you think that as populations grow, are we going to be in a scenario where every year there are going to be more people that are going to be waiting for an organ transplant? Or is it the kind of thing, uh, if some are preventable, is it the kind of thing where that needs more education as well? I I think that in the short term, we're probably going to continue to see increases in the need. Uh, We hope that we can see increases in in, uh, our potential to provide for that need. Um, it may be with preventive care that there'll be less in the way of end organ um, you know, failures and need for transplants, but I think that's probably a ways off right now. All right, and I, I'm looking at the numbers as well. So as of the end of 2021, there were still, I think, 585 people still on that list. And is that where the education comes in as well? Again, that uh, on the other side of it, if, if more people who say they're in favor of it, and yes, I would sign up given the chance, if more people actually did sign up, then, then we would see that number come down? Um, we would hope so, um, because there's no doubt that in you know the setting of, a tragic event um, that leads to for someone to be in a, uh, a sadly a potential organ donor. For the family, it is much easier um, to make decisions for donation if there's been 
um, the time, if the time has been taken to register, and 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 equally, if not more important, um, discuss it. Um, it's, you know, it's sometimes difficult to talk about, but it's 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 uh, really important for the, those who are uh, at all interested in becoming an organ donor to register that and um, let their family know, um, and so that at, it does it makes it easier at the time. It's, I'm not, it's nothing is easy at the time, but at least their wishes are are known. Where uh, otherwise they may not be. Right. Um, yeah, and that and that's the the difference between registering and not being registered. All right. Well, Dr. Keenan, thanks so much for joining us to look at these numbers. Appreciate the time you've given us today. Um, uh, thank you very much for your interest. Thanks for being with us. Well, a new report that has been released by Johns Hopkins University is taking a look at lockdowns, and it found that lockdowns only reduced deaths associated to COVID-19 by a point, by about 0.2%. This report is 62 pages, and again, it takes a look specifically at lockdowns and the effects on mortality, the death rate as we can link it to COVID-19. So joining me to talk a little bit more about the findings is Jennifer Grant, an infectious diseases physician at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's it's quite a pleasure to be with you. Uh, a lot of people have been referencing this report or uh, citing this report when it comes to lockdowns. What is your takeaway when looking at this and the finding, uh, one of the findings of this saying that there's no evidence that lockdowns, school closures, things like closing the borders, limiting gatherings in people's homes have a big impact on mortality linked to COVID-19? So I think this paper really um, makes a very important first stab at what is an incredibly complicated um, subject. And I think that it's important that they looked at death because it's such a, a clear um, measure and it, it's sort of hard to have it be misinterpreted. And I, I think the important thing to notice is that they're comparing um, mandatory uh, behavior change compared to voluntary behavior change. So I, I don't think that one should walk away saying that limiting contact or um, reducing your um, exposure is necessarily bad, but rather that the difference between having people do it voluntarily compared to um, having the government mandate it um, is the difference may not be as large as is uh, previously been thought. So do you mean comparing things like when the schools were closed to in-person learning or the fact that with the borders closed to the kinds of things where people didn't have a choice? Well, exactly. Keep in mind that when there's something like this, that a lot of people change their behavior naturally. And, and it tends to be the people who are at highest risk who are most likely to change their behavior. So the people who have an immune uh, compromising condition or um, who um, are known uh, to have bad outcomes with viruses, they're the people who are going to hide away first. Um, and so um, regardless of what the government um, says, um, those people are going to protect themselves. And I do want to touch on schools because schools are really important. And I think if there's one thing we can learn from this entire episode is that that closing schools um, was never a good idea. And um, all of the data we've sort of covered since then really does show that school closures do little to stop the virus but do enormous harm to children. Right. And would you put that one kind of as as, as, as 
singling that out with the, with the damage because when we look at the damage from these lockdowns as well, the the mental health damage and the the socialization that happens in schools, do you think that one does stand on its own, looking specifically at the the benefits versus the negatives? I think it's the most glaring example. Absolutely. And and really what we've done to children in the last two years is really quite upsetting. And I I think if one thing we walk away from this is we never close schools again, I think that that would be a good learning point. But I think we also need to look at other very low risk populations. So if we look at um, young adults, uh, students in university or uh, work training programs, in fact, they're, they're Um, outcome with the virus is very good. They tend not to get very severe disease, at least the vast majority. And and there are some who are at very high risk, and those are people we can help protect. But the sort of mass locking down of um, young adults, I think also probably um, was more damaging than beneficial. Um, And also locking down entire industries. Um, The restaurant industry really does stand out as an example of, you know, uh, an industry that's been asked to take Um, a huge hit when they probably weren't responsible for the vast majority of transmissions. It also takes a look at the impact of border closures, which said that looking again at this information specifically linked to mortality, that border closures would show that the death rate perhaps only went down about 0.1%. So it would make the argument that those aren't particularly effective when many of those are still in place. Yes, and, and I think that is a good point. And this is something that we've actually known for, for quite some time. Um, when we look at previous outbreaks um, of organisms like influenza, which also tends to spread in the same way as COVID, is that closing the borders, unfortunately, um, short of not allowing anyone in or out, which is not functional, um, especially when most of our food comes from elsewhere in the winter, um, it's just not functional, and the number of people you let in is not going to stop the virus from crossing the border regardless. And so we, we do a lot of damage um, by restricting some people's movement, um, and at the end of the day, the virus still gets across, and a more fit virus will always spread, no, no matter what we do. So does this kind of give more uh, backing up to the argument? And as we, we talk about this, we know that the, the protest is continuing in Ottawa, protests on, on the border in Alberta continuing. There are more protests planned. I mean, those are protests calling for the end to these measures, not just lockdown measures, but, but other, any other measures as well. But does this study point in the direction that what we should be doing at this point is looking at a way, of course, to protect the most vulnerable, be it long-term care or people who are the most vulnerable and avoid any type of lockdown measure from this point on. Yeah, and I, and I think that we really need to be um, sympathetic and grateful to my public health colleagues who've worked really hard and done absolutely the best they can with the tools they had. I, I think right now we have to acknowledge that the tools are different and the situation's different. So we did a lot of things because it's all we had. But now we have vaccines which are fantastic at stopping severe disease. And I just really want to take a moment for everyone listening. If you're at high risk of severe disease, please, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. It could save your life. Um, We also have new treatments that are coming online. Some of our treatments have, um, you know, an 89% reduction in um, needing hospitalization. uh, And we're making sure that the people most at risk are going to get those um, as soon as we can um, get them rolled out. And I also think we need to acknowledge that we're dealing with a much, much milder variant. So Omicron is sixfold less likely to land you in hospital. That's probably substantially less than that. 
And when you, if you do end up in hospital, you're much less likely to stay a long time and you're much less likely to need the intensive care unit. So I, I think it's going to take quite a while to really understand where, if anywhere, these measures were very, very helpful. Um, but I think moving forward, the time is to start thinking about this as a different type of disease that needs different types of responses. Uh, do you think also that that's why we're probably maybe seeing more anger and a bit more pushback right now in that we still get the numbers of people that are in hospital and we're still told by health officials that the biggest concern is over is is capacity at hospitals and running hospitals and, and reaching that capacity. But we just got those numbers out earlier this week that show 44% of the people who are in the hospital that have COVID didn't go there to get treatment for COVID. They went there for something else and then either contracted the virus while they were in hospital or were asymptomatic and tested positive while they were there. And I mean, doesn't that show us that Hospitals aren't being overrun by people with COVID. Like you said, this is showing to be not nearly uh, as, as fatal a form of the virus, but, but people are still being told you, might, you, you should be staying at home because this is so dangerous. Yeah, and I think that it's going to take quite a while for, for people to, to shift their thinking. I think there's some people who um, are going to take longer than others, but I, it's an important time to have this conversation and start thinking about how we want to get our lives back to normal the truth is this virus is here forever. It's, it's going to continue to circulate for the foreseeable future. And the truth is almost all of us are going to be infected at least once. So I, I think I, I certainly understand that some people are um, afraid and reluctant to move forward. But the truth is we, we need to. Um, and I think we need to start listening um, to people who are proposing um, even stepwise movements back to normal. And we're, we heard that as well from the, the WHO earlier today, talking about that it's time to kind of move forward to a phase of what was it, plausible endgame, which I think is, is kind of what you're saying there too. Uh, like it's not going anywhere at this point and we need to learn to live with it as safely as we can. Exactly. And, and for some people, especially for uh, children and young adults, that means going back to normal completely. That means not having masks in schools. It means allowing people to associate. Sports need to come back. Um, universities need to go back into session. And we need to stop worrying about our low-risk people. Um, but it may mean for other people that we may need to spend some time thinking about how we're going to protect them, be that our organ transplant recipients or people um, receiving chemotherapy for cancer. And how do we um, make space for those people in society and make sure that they're as safe as they can possibly be? Uh, do you think the numbers are uh, the way that they get kind of interpreted in some cases too? And again, I realize we're talking about people dying and, and that's, and it's, not a fun topic to to go into, but we again looking at the numbers that are released from our provincial health officials, there are people in there where there is the question: Okay, you died in hospital or you died in long term care, and yes, you you did have COVID, but that might not have been the reason that you died. I mean, people do pass away. That's that's part of it's certainly a part of long term care. Are we looking enough at the numbers at the specific causes of deaths? I think that that is something that we really should start looking at a little bit more closely. During the heat of the pandemic, it probably wasn't where we wanted to put our energy. Now, I think it does make some sense. And, and I think that we also have to acknowledge that that might not be a really easy answer to know. And that we have people who were maybe not in the best of health, but were doing okay. 
um, who got COVID, um, and that one thing led to another, which led to another, and that ended um, them up um, ultimately dying. And it's not that COVID didn't wasn't part of the process. Um, it's just that it's not as simple as you know COVID was a clear cause of death, and we may never be able to pull those clearly. But I think we need to acknowledge that the people we're seeing with COVID who are dying, especially now, tend to be people who are very frail, um, for whom any number of things um, might have led to the same spiral um, and acknowledge that, um, unfortunately, as, as much as we'd love to cure everybody of everything, that's not always realistic. And again, I, I, it sounds like, and we've talked about this on the program before, as much as we would like to say the number we're going for of COVID fatalities in the future is zero, that's not a reasonable or realistic number. No, and, and it never will be. We will every year, as we do with influenza and as we do with many other respiratory viruses, we will continue to have ongoing people who die of of COVID, as we did um, with the commonly circulating coronaviruses that we see every year, which in long-term care have a, a 10% mortality. So we will continue to see deaths. It will go down to our regular baseline of frail elderly people, um, who unfortunately um, don't have the physiologic reserve to to survive any form of infection. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Jennifer Grant, though, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this study. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me.